as a follower of Jesus where certain scriptures, passages, um, to not sound too cliche, will jump off the page at you. And they'll convict you, they'll encourage you, they'll kind of lead you, and it gets on the front of your mind and you can't seem to shake it. And uh, as of late, I've been helping uh, navigate through a few situations uh, in all sincerity not related to New Hope. It's hard to say that and I have to clarify that, but that have brought certain passages to the front of my mind where I can't shake them and uh, they're just, man, they're just embedded into me and the way that I'm thinking and trying to think through things and make decisions and help other people. And um, one of them appears in the book of Daniel. Uh, it's this encounter that Daniel has. It's fascinating to me when you study his life. Uh, the book of Daniel is found in your Old Testament, and as you walk through it from the very, the very beginning of this book, you are faced with the integrity and character of Daniel. And it just continues to show up page after page after page. This theme, this thread of godly character and integrity just jumps off the page at you. See, Daniel and his friends, they were taken captive and oppressed by the Babylonian Empire. And a part of that captivity is they come in and they take them out of everything they own. Now you read that and you think about it like a history book, but just picture it just for a minute, just for a moment, what it would have been like for them. Everything they knew, all of their customs, their traditions, their comforts, they're ripped away from them. And they're taken off into exile into a land that's not theirs. And they're forced against their will to serve in the military of the, the, the army and the military that had just taken them into exile. And right off the bat, you see Daniel's integrity shine, come off the page. Right away, they're told to eat a certain food and drink a certain drink, and he comes to them and says, I can't do it based on the conviction that I have from the dietary laws of the God that I worship, the God of the Bible. And at, at that time, there were dietary laws that restricted them from participating in eating certain things, drinking certain things. And so he said, I'm not going to do it. That would have been a great risk to his life. So like immediately, many of us won't have to face a moment where our integrity may or may not. Standing firm on your character would potentially cost you your life. But here it is right off the bat. They could have just kind of disregarded this little kid. But he proposes something to them. He says, how about we try a different route and just see if it works? Like, what if we eat the way that I'm prescribing that we eat? And we, and we do the things that I'm telling you to do. And so they tested it. And sure enough, it works. The military gets stronger. The people are healthier when they uh, obey these dietary laws. And right off the bat, you learn, man, integrity, living this life, is the way that God designed it. God designed life to live a certain way. Daniel's uh, motivation, what Daniel wanted to do is simply, I just want to live a life of integrity and character. I want my life to glorify God. And you learn right away on the, for Daniel chapter 1 that God designed life to work a certain way, and when you obey it, you thrive. And so this military thrives. But what happens to Daniel is that the people around him begin to notice that with his integrity, he's entrusted with more responsibility, more authority, and they don't like it. And so in addition to learning that integrity usually is the way that God designed life to thrive, you also learn that integrity will oftentimes, and maybe you've experienced this, put you in the very crosshairs of the people who don't have any integrity. And all of a sudden now you're a target for them for a variety of reasons. And that's what happens to Daniel. Perhaps the most vivid example of this happens in Daniel chapter 6. This is what that encounter looks like, beginning in verse 1. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. 
with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king would not suffer loss. So he puts a management system in place. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps that with his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So verse 3 tells us that Daniel had such exceptional qualities of integrity that those who were in authority over him took note of that, meaning he did the right things the right way. It's a pretty simple way to live. Daniel just woke up every day. While this isn't easy, it's quite simple. He woke up and just said, God, this is where I'm at right now. And whatever decision is in front of me, whatever choice I have to make, I want to make sure that it glorifies you. And when we say glorifies you, it honors God. It's what God would have wanted. It puts the spotlight on him and not on you. So I want all my decisions in the little moments and the big. And Daniel understood a truth that integrity is not really formed fully on the mountaintop, though that's a part of it. It's usually formed in the valley. It's the everyday moments of your life where your integrity is truly tested, when your character is really put on the line. It's those quiet moments when no one's around. They begin to notice that Daniel just consistently over and over again makes decisions that brings honor to the Lord but it fires up the people around them. They get upset. And why are they upset? Well, I think they're upset because they experience what many of us do. Look, we're Christians, so we don't stand in here and say, we have integrity fully all the time. Look, we've all messed up. We all have these moments where making a decision to make ourselves comfortable just becomes too much, and we give in. And we make that decision that was really like, I'm not sure that this is the right thing to do, but it's just not that big of a deal, and so we make the decision. And if you've ever been in a situation where you're dealing with these seemingly insignificant choices, the small choices, they don't seem to impact much. And so you make the decision that makes you most comfortable. You know, it could be whatever, something financially, something uh, with just a choice that you make that's like, I could do it the right way, but I'm going to just kind of cut the corner here just a touch. And then you're exposed to somebody who refuses to do so. What does it do to you if you're honest? It infuriates you. Like, are you serious? Can't you? Like, why? Right? And, And that's what happens, right? When we have integrity... The part of the pressure is the watching world will begin to say things like this. Oh, you're just holier than thou, huh? You think you're better than everybody. Like, I didn't say anything. I'm just choosing to do this the right way. And this is what's happening to Daniel. He's choosing over and over again to make decisions that bring honor and glory to God in the small things and the big. And the people around him begin to notice the authorities over him say, man, we can trust this guy. So we want to give him more to be trusted with. But then the people that are around them are like, no, 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 no. He refuses to cut corners. I can't stand him. He frustrates me. And all of a sudden, they begin to say, we got to get rid of Daniel. Because if we want to keep doing what we're doing, we want to keep getting the power, the resources that we want, we got to get rid of this guy because he's doing it in a way that we don't want to do it because that's not comfortable for us. And so they start a smear campaign. It's what we would call it nowadays. They take a deep dive into Daniel's history, trying to find some bit of dirt on him. But it's as if Daniel is saying this to him, like, look, uh, you, no need for a Google search. Here's the computer. Just look at, like, what, I, what do you want, man? Take a look at my life. Anything you want. And in perhaps, I think, one of the most profound and potentially most beautiful verses in the whole Bible, it's right there in chapter, five, uh, chapter 6, verse 
4, where he says this, they could find no corruption in him, in Daniel, because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. So they did this smear campaign looking for this, something to compromise his character and integrity, and they come up empty. Why? Well, the text tells us it's because Daniel could be trusted. He was trustworthy. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm not going to hide things. I don't want to have secrets. Secrets are exhausting, right? Was it in Mark Twain that said, if you just tell the truth, you never have to remember anything? And that's his life. Like, I just, I'm just going to be honest. But it wasn't just that. He wasn't corrupt, meaning the decisions that he did make, though he would tell the truth about them, they weren't self-serving. There was no corruption in him. He wasn't trying to take an angle or, or one of those decisions that you can make where it's like, this is completely legal, but totally unethical. You're allowed to make that decision, sure, but it's very self-serving. See, there was no corruption in Daniel. And then it says not only that, but he wasn't negligent, meaning he paid attention to the details, even the small things he wanted to do with the right character. So he could be trusted with big things and small things. He paid attention to the details. In other words, Daniel was a guy who just simply said, I want to do the right thing, and I want to do it the right way. And that puts him in the crosshairs of the people that don't like to do the right thing the right way. They simply wanted the easy button. They wanted to get to the fastest result, to the most comfort that they could possibly create in their own life. And that's the decision I want to make. I want to be comfortable. Right? I want to have what I want when I want it. And I don't care about how I get there, but I need to get there. The goal is my comfort. The goal is my power. The goal is satisfying my greed. See, in Daniel's situation, we see integrity displayed in two things. One, we see it displayed in what Daniel chooses to do. And that's really what we get inspired by, right? You see it in chapter one. You see it with Daniel's three friends in chapter three. They're faced with being thrown into this furnace if they don't cave and give in. And what do they decide? They're like, I'm not going to do it. But even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to do it. So they get thrown in the fiery furnace and, and God honors that and blesses them and they survive it. And we're like, yes, they chose to do the right thing. I'm always going to choose. And we're inspired by that. That's a good thing, right? But you also see integrity in each of these situations displayed in what the opposition chooses not to do. Because given the opportunity, these people that were up against Daniel, all they had to do is say, you know what? I'm watching Daniel live, and though it frustrates me, he's right. And I need to stop living this way, and I need to just, just get over it, and I need to start living the right way. And that's all they would have had to do to get that life, but they wanted it easy. Sometimes, when someone else's integrity rubs up against our pride, we don't have the humility that's required to have integrity, to repent and just say, look, I was wrong, and I need to do better with this. They miss it. They miss that opportunity, and so they go and they create a lie. Daniel's caught, and now we're in a dilemma. Integrity now will cost you greatly. It's fascinating, we'll, we'll, we'll mention this again later on, but Daniel didn't know what we were going to read about the lion's den. He didn't have integrity because he knew somehow he would not be harmed. In Daniel's mind, this is, gonna, this is it. This is going to cost me everything, and yet his integrity was so rooted in the desire to bring honor to God that he was going to choose to honor God no matter what. Now, I love that. I'm, I'm inspired by his life, and here lately, a couple different scenarios I found myself in. This just jumps off the page. This is a pretty powerful text uh, to read through and to just see how it plays out in my life. But for me, and I've shared this with you before, these kind of things have always hit me. Because one of the things that I was taught in, in being discipled is to lead with the end in mind. Right? So have this vision when you get to the end of your life that influences the big and small decisions you make now in your life. And again, I've shared this with you before, but one of the things I have in my life is most days I can picture my casket. 
And it's kind of morbid. Well, welcome to New Hope, okay? <laughs> I, I picture my casket. I really do. Uh, and I picture what it's going to be like when my casket's in the room and my friends and my family are around. And my deepest desire, one of my deepest desires is that my children, my four children, could look at that casket and say, that's the godliest man I ever knew. And that my wife could look at that casket and say, I would do it all over again. Much easier said than done. Much easier. Why? Because I'm, it's not lost on me. The moment you walk out of here, you enter Monday through Saturday, and the heat intensifies around the desire to compromise and to give in, to make small decisions that don't seem to matter until they add up and they seem to then matter. It is not lost on me how difficult it is to be a person of integrity and character in this world. This is not a Christian cliche thing that we just simply sit here. It, look, it, the easiest place to have integrity is right now in this room. Gathered with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the hardest place is the moment we leave this place. It gets a lot more difficult. That's part of why I'm so moved by this idea of integrity and character as well. Because I know that many of you, the moment you leave here, it just gets harder. You walk into classrooms and businesses you stay at home by yourself and work for yourself, and you have an entire internet of temptation that comes at you all the time. You have past experiences that you allow to continue to influence present decision-making. All kinds of things that come at you, and, and, and what's being tested is, will you trust God in these small moments and in these big moments, and will you trust Him so that when you decide, I want to make this small decision, this big decision to bring glory to God, I'm going to trust that He'll take care of it after that. And we don't just see it in the life of Daniel, you see it in the life of Jesus. So today in chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus' integrity be tested and questioned. How does he respond and what do we learn from his response, similar to what we learned from Daniel's response? So that when we get out of here and we leave this place today and we're sent and we scatter, longing for gathering again with brothers and sisters in Christ, but knowing that when we scatter, it gets hard. What do we learn from Jesus in his life? Look, look I promise you we're finishing chapter 8 today, okay? Like, you're like, man, chapter 8 is long, but it ain't that long. You're just taking forever, and I get it. We're going to go through chapter 8. We'll finish it up today. Next week, we jump ahead to chapter 12, because we've already preached this year on 9, 10, and 11. a little out of order with some things that we did. So next week, if you're someone that reads ahead, we'll begin chapter 12. But right here in chapter 8, you watch Jesus interact with this group of people, and John describes them in, in, in what we looked at last week as believing. This is a group of people that believed. They'd heard the, mir- or heard the teaching, saw the miracles, and they believed what they were seeing. Like, man, this is interesting. And, and they begin to ask questions and go back and forth with Jesus. Now he's going to identify them in the first verse we look at, and he'll say, this is a different group of people that joined the conversation And he'll identify them as the Jews. And what he means when he says that is over and over again in John's gospel, he'll identify the religious leaders that are opposed to Jesus with that uh, designation. He'll say the Jews or the Jewish leaders, those who wanted to come and they did not agree with Jesus. And now he's going to interact with them. Would you stand together for the reading of God's word this morning? John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this, they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death? 
Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do, not, I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. This is God's word. You can be seated. So right off the bat, you've got these people in opposition to Jesus, and they're going to come, and they lob this accusation at him. They come, they have seen, keep in mind, they have seen the miracles that he's done. They've heard the teaching that has astonished so many different people, and they don't like it. And they've tried so hard to find a reason to discount Jesus. They want a legitimate reason to question his integrity, and just like Daniel chapter 6, they couldn't find it. And so they come and they lob this accusation at him, and they say this, weren't we right about you? That you're a Samaritan and that you're possessed by a demon. Now, it was obvious to most in the crowd he wasn't a Samaritan based on his interactions. But they're, they're just trying as best they can. They're grasping at straws, in my opinion, to bring this accusation towards Jesus. That you're not to be trusted. And aren't you actually possessed by a demon? And that's how you do these miracles? Now, normally, when somebody brings an accusation to you, one of the wisest things to do is, if you know it's not true, is to simply ignore it. I'm like, yeah, okay, what you're saying is not true. I don't even need to give this the time. Jesus, oftentimes, when accusations were lobbed at him, would engage uh, with, with a method of asking questions, bringing truth out of people, forcing them to answer questions. And yet there's this accusation that you see throughout the Gospels that Jesus doesn't use that method of asking questions. He defends himself. He's not defensive in his tone or even in his motivation. He has nothing to prove to them. But he responds to them in a way that's very direct. Each time when you read through the Gospels that Jesus is questioned as being possessed by a demon, he responds directly. And he does so right here. But look at some of these other examples. In Mark chapter 3, when accused of being possessed by a demon, he says this in verse 26. He says, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Meaning, Satan can't work against Satan. You have to come in and one person wins that battle, but the same person's not fighting the same person here. He explains it in even more detail with an incident he has in Matthew chapter 12, where he says this. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? See, now they're, they're seeing the miracle They're hearing from Jesus, and they're putting things together that says, logically, what makes sense is that he could be the one we've been looking for. And he's put in the crosshairs of the people that don't have integrity, and they come in. They heard this. They said, it's only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. You're telling me that I'm driving out demons out of this man and healing him. 
because I'm demon-possessed. He says, that doesn't work. Meaning if Satan is in this man, and you're saying Satan's in me, why would Satan cast out Satan? Because the moment that Satan works against Satan, his kingdom falls apart. What you're saying doesn't work. But instead, I cast out Satan out of this man, this demon out of this man, because the kingdom of God has come upon you. It is the spirit of God by which I do this. Not a house divided against itself will fall. So why is it then that when he's accused time and time again of being demon-possessed, that he takes the time to actually respond to them and lay out why he's not? Like, why not just ignore it and move on? It's obvious to everybody else around them that these guys had an agenda and that Jesus wasn't guilty of what they were saying. I think it's the crowd. I think in each of these moments, there's people that have been observing. I mean, you see this in Matthew chapter 12 when they ask, could this be the son of David? So there's people that are curious. They're seeing things. And when this accusation comes, Jesus is protecting their conclusions, not defending himself. So what he's saying is this. He's saying, I I don't want these people to draw this bad conclusion, so I'm going to address it directly. Why? Because he wants the crowd to understand that these religious leaders are grasping at straws. You can't explain away the miracles. And you can't fully explain away with lies why I teach the way that I teach. You've got nothing left. So you create a lie. You create a scenario to manipulate people. And once again, we're faced with seeing integrity. How does Jesus stand so firm? How is he so calm, cool, and collected? I mean, look at how he's interacted over and over again in chapter 8. It's just a picture, physical picture, an image of what integrity looks like. When you're facing things that are coming at you, I don't know how you normally respond. I don't respond with, hey, just take a look. It's fine. I'd like to in every scenario. But boy, if you hit the right button, it's like, oh, no, you want to do this? I'm more like the sons of thunder, the ones that follow Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus, just one time. Can we just light somebody up? Let's just see. Make an example out of them, right? Jesus, what does he display? He's just, how's he so calm when lies are lobbed against him, when false things are said about him, when things aren't good and going the way that he wants them to go? How is it that he's able to stand so strong? Well, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9 tells us, in my opinion, and when it says this, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. See, without integrity, we're worried. We're worried what people think. We're worried what we're going to lose. We don't have control. Control is a mirage, right? We think we control things, and anything can change like this. You're one phone call away from losing control of everything you thought you had control of. It's a mirage. It's not real. The sovereignty of God is what gives us security, and Jesus was rooted in God's sovereignty, knowing that God is the one that works together for the good of everybody. God is the one that controls this. And I, what does he say? I, I, he explains where he gets that in verses 50 to 59. He says, look, I'm not seeking my own glory. I seek the glory of the Father, the one who sent me. In every moment, big and small, I want God's glory to be on display. I want everything to point the spotlight on God the Father. I want it all to be about Him. And He says, if I didn't, then I'd be a liar like you guys. What's He saying when He says that? He's saying this is that your motivation is not God's glory, it's your own glory. What about you? I mean, really. The decisions you make on a regular basis, the ones that don't seem to matter, What about you? Are you seeking your own glory, your own comfort, the spotlight to be on you in a culture that glorifies the individual unlike any culture maybe in the history of the world? It is very difficult to make sure that our motivation is God's glory and not our own. 
And Jesus explains that to them. He lays that out for them. If I seek my own glory, it does no good, but I seek the glory of the Father. Why? Because he's going to handle everything. His integrity is secure because it's rooted in the glory of God and not in himself. I am here to glorify the Father. Could the same be said of us? Because here's the deal. Many of us would agree. It's easy to glorify God when things go really well, right? When life is good, when there's money in the checking account, when my decisions are the ones that lead to good things, when everybody's behaving well and living well and healthy, it is easy to give glory to God. Let me give you an example. My kids like sports, so we watch a lot of sports in our home. And I know that's not everybody's favorite illustration. I get that, but you can fill in the blank with what happens most in your life, but there's a lot of sports in our home, okay? And so we watch a lot of sports. I see this displayed in athletes nonstop, like all the time. When they hit the shot, when they score a touchdown, when they win the game, when they get a championship, it's really easy for them to say this line. I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the line. That is the company line for giving glory to God in athletics. And here's the deal. I'm not mad about that. That's great. That's awesome. Yes, point that out. Where are they when it doesn't go well, when they drop the pass, when they lose the game? Right? When, you, when you interview the players after that, it's just, rah, rah, rah. there's not a lot, hey, I just trust the Lord. Like, it didn't go my way today, but man, God is good, and I trust. It, you don't hear it. Why? Why? Because it's about glorifying oneself. See, it's easy when things are really, really good in our lives to give God all the glory and all the credit. But what about when it gets really hard? What about when it gets really difficult? You see, what do you see here in Jesus? Things are really hard. How is it that he has integrity? Well, we've said it already, but look at what he does here in verse 54. They ask him, who do you think you are? And his response is, my goal in life is to glorify God. He was focused, supremely focused on the glory of God. So let me ask, when you wake up in the morning, how far into your morning does it take before you begin to give that day to the Lord? God, today's yours. I'm breathing. I'm alive. I'm here. What do you want today? This is for you. How far into your day does it take before you stop thinking about you and you start thinking about what he needs and what he's called you to? See, Jesus was supremely focused on God's glory. But the other thing you see here that's just fascinating to me about John 8, the end of John 8, is this. Jesus' integrity was so intact that in the middle of opposition, he could focus on compassion towards his enemies. This is unbelievable. Because once again, that's not my reaction to people not being kind to me. My first thought isn't, hmm, yeah, you need eternal life. That's not the first thing. <laughs> My first thought is, I'll help you get there. But, like, that, uh, that's, that, but look what Jesus does. Look what he does here in verse 51. In the midst of them opposing him nonstop, what does he do? He says, hey, if you'll, but if you'll obey me, if you'll stop all of this, if you'll stop living a life that doesn't have integrity, if you'll stop making choices that only glorify yourself and you'll obey me, you'll never taste death. What's he doing? He's making another invitation. He's done this two other times in chapter 8. Another invitation to his opponents, to people that aren't agreeing with him. And he's telling them, but you can have eternal life too. Like in the middle of all of this, integrity also requires the humility to recognize when we're wrong and just own it. Own our junk and just say, look, I messed up. And what has cost me greatly, I want to rebuild on a foundation of godly integrity. Now, they misunderstand Jesus, and they come back at him, and they're like, no, hold on. Uh, Abraham died. 
and the prophets died, and you think that you're greater than them. And he's like, well, Abraham longed to see my day, and he's seen it. Wait a second. You're not 50 years old. How in the world have you seen Abraham? And it's as if Jesus is getting to the end of this conversation and thinking, okay, like I've tried. I mean, I've tried to explain Abraham's role in all of this and my role in all of this, and you're not hearing me. So he kind of stops him, and he says this. Look, let me clarify that Abraham's not the authority you should be looking to. I am. How does he do that? Well, he says to them, look, before Abraham was even born, I am. And what he means by that is this. He's saying, before he was born, I was there. And he longed for my day. My day is here. And you're missing it. This infuriates them. Because in doing so, he's claiming to be God. And so they pick up stones to kill him. And Jesus has to hide himself and slip away. And i got to wonder, as he hides himself and he slips away from being killed because it wasn't his time yet, i got to wonder if he's heartbroken. Because right back to verse 51, i got to wonder if based on verse 51 where he says, you can live forever, you can have eternal life, you don't have to taste death, I'm here so you can have life. And they reject it. I wonder if he's walking away with the same grief in his heart that he did when he wept over Jerusalem. And he said, why can't you just see it? Why can't you just see it, that you're glorifying yourselves and all these decisions. It's just going to lead to more and more pain in your life. Why can't you see it? That he's invited them to live a life of integrity. So I don't know what your week looks like. I know it gets harder when you leave this place. But over the last few months, I've been in a couple of different environments where both Daniel 6 and John 8 have come to life, where the call to integrity, has, it's taught me some things. I've, I've noticed some things in looking at Daniel's life and the life of Jesus about character and integrity that I think are so vitally important for us. And they've shown up over and over again just in my life. And I got to think that after today, you're going to walk out of here and you're going to be able to see what God's word has taught us today over and over again in your life. Opportunities for you to make decisions that have integrity or temptations for you to compromise your integrity. So what is it that we learn here? Well, the first thing is this. Integrity requires that we have a commitment to the word. And what do we mean by that? Well, four different times in chapter 8, Jesus makes this connection. You have it in verse 31, 47, 51, and 55 where Jesus will say this. You need to obey my word. Or he'll say, I obey the Father's word. What, what does that mean? Well, it means that our understanding as Christians means this, that if we want to have integrity, we got to know what God's word says. And so I come to God's word to learn what God says. We worship the self-revealed God of the Bible. He has revealed himself to us in scripture. And so if I want a life that honors him and gives him glory, I have to know what he says. Here's the thing I notice about Daniel and Jesus. Daniel never ran away by himself to open up God's word and listen to a podcast where he allowed some other teacher to teach him what God's word was saying. And, and Jesus didn't retreat consistently to go and spend time in God's word and just listen to some Bible class that he found on YouTube. None of those things are bad. There is a place for you to sit under good, godly Bible teaching. But if you don't have a personal time of reading God's word by yourself, you are relying on Somebody else is regurgitated food to give you nourishment, and it doesn't work. It can only last for so long. And so the, the, the life of integrity is a life that I would say this way, is saturated with the Word of God. Yes, you sit under good teaching, and you need to do that. But you also need to, every day, open up God's Word and have some time where it's you and the Bible. So that that's what the Spirit can pull up in your mind and heart in moments where your integrity is tested. Second thing we learn is this. It's a commitment not just to the word, but to prayer. 
And you see this consistently, and this is literally what gets Daniel thrown into the lion's den. He refuses to stop praying. Like, you're not allowed to pray. And like, no, I'm going to pray. And, and again, I, let me remind you, he did not know what was going to happen when he got thrown in the lion's den. But he knew he could not live his life and have the character that he'd had without a commitment, without a, a firm commitment to praying and spending time with God. Consistently, Jesus in John chapter 8 will say over and over again, I know God. I know the Father. The Father knows me. I know him. Well, how is that possible if you don't spend time with him? Let me ask you this. If I got up here and I told you that I really knew my wife, Sarah, I mean, I know her, everything about her, I'm the person that knows her the most, and you went and talked to Sarah, and you said, man, Rob said this, and that's really cool, and she'd say, that's interesting. Rob and I don't talk. Like, there's these huge gaps of time where we just don't even talk to each other, and you'd be like, okay, well, maybe you're just in, like, a dry season in your marriage where there's no communication, and you're not talking. Okay, understandable, but you come back to her, and you realize, no, this isn't just a season. This is a pattern. Where Rob never talks to Sarah, but occasionally, maybe once a week, they check in, look at the calendar, and then they're just disconnected and they don't talk. And then I get up and say, I really know Sarah. You would begin to question whether or not I really knew Sarah. You would say, I don't, I don't think you do. I don't think you're really connected to her the way you think maybe you are. You're, you're not, you don't ever spend time with her. Well, the same thing is true in our relationship with God. Many of us will say, I know God. I have a relationship with God, and yet we never spend time in prayer. It's understandable to have a season, but when a pattern develops, it begins to be questioning whether or not you actually have that relationship and know the Lord. To know him is to spend time with him. It was said of Jesus he would consistently retreat from the stage, retreat from the crowds, wasn't building platform and influence, and he wanted to get away from all of that to go off and spend time alone with God. Can the same be said of us? It also involves a a commitment to honesty and vulnerability. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 49. He just tells the truth. Nope, I'm not possessed by a demon. And when the, the heat is applied to Daniel's life, what does he do? Hey, Daniel, have you continued to pray to God? Yep. I keep praying. <laughs> I'm going to keep praying to God. I'm just going to tell the truth. That's not easy, is it? When your integrity is questioned, to just tell the truth. Mark Twain famously said, right? If you just tell the truth, you never have to remember anything. Like, I'm just going to live my life in a way that's like, oh, you have a question? Here's the truth. I've said this to my kids numerous times, right? And, and here's the thing about me telling you this. This is not an opportunity for you to go and pop quiz my kids. My kids, that's, it, it is funny, right? Like, don't do that. Uh, but I'll bring the sons of thunder. I'm kidding, not that. But I, my kids need a good experience with church that doesn't involve just being tied to the preacher. So like, leave them alone, okay? But one of the things I do try to impress on them is this. A, a godly leader always does the right thing. Just a phrase. I'll say it all the time. We'll be in the car talking through it. Hey, don't forget, a godly leader, a leader will always do the right thing. And it kind of comes from a phrase from the late preacher Charles Stanley, who, who famously would say this. He said, always do the right thing and trust God with the consequences of it. I'm just going to do the right thing, and it might make it hard on my life, and it might not make it hard on my life. Either way, I'm just going to trust God with that. This is what I know to be true because I spend time in his word and I spend time in prayer and the spirit has led me to this decision. I don't want to make this decision. This is going to be not as fun, but I'm going to make this decision and trust God with the consequences of it. Again, can the same be said of us? The last thing would be this. It's a commitment to God's word, a commitment to prayer, to honesty and vulnerability, but also a readiness to suffer. 
You see, Daniel, again, he didn't know what we would read so many years later about, oh, yeah, he got out. That's so cute. Kid story. That's really fun. He thought, I'm dying today because I chose to tell the truth. Hmm. And his friends getting ready to be thrown in that fiery furnace in chapter 3, they didn't know what we were going to read about that encounter. To them, they responded, even if God doesn't rescue us, our integrity is intact. We want to walk securely. Jesus, I mean, look how angry you have to be to pick up rocks and stones and want to murder him. And he sneaked. He knew he was going to get away from that one, but he also knew that my integrity will ultimately lead me to the cross where he would die for us so that when our integrity breaks down and we make decisions that don't honor him, we have an opportunity in his grace because of his perfect integrity to pick up the pieces of our broken integrity and continue to rebuild. See, that invitation is extended to every one of us. When we walk out of here today, we can be people who are described the way Daniel was described, the way Jesus would have been described, and they could find no corruption in them because they were trustworthy. That group of Christians, and they were trustworthy. They were not corrupt or negligent. In other words, we can choose to be a group of people, individuals, and together as a church family who choose to do the right thing, and trust God with the consequences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace because this call to integrity is not easy when we battle sin. And that sin can sometimes get the best of us, Father. But deep down, God, we want to seek your glory and not our own. We don't stand a chance against the temptations that we'll face when we leave this place. And so we need your spirit to lead us, to encourage us, to convict us. But God, we also, we have a role to play. And so help us be a people committed to your word so that the spirit pulls forth from the well of our hearts, from a deep fountain of your word, hidden deep in there. So in our moments of temptation, we might have integrity. God, help us understand that to know you is to spend time with you. And that the busyness of our lives and the temptation to go, 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 we need to find time to slow down. To talk to you, to pour out our hearts to you, to listen for you. God, help us to be a people of honesty and vulnerability that have nothing to hide because we just want to seek to glorify you. And, and God, if that costs us something, help us to be ready to suffer for your glory and for your sake. God, we ask you to help us through the power of your spirit and the encouragement of your church family to choose to do the right thing and to trust you with all the consequences. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name.